when we think about adoption and we think about foster care and the reality of orphans by the numbers of millions, as you will see in my pastoral notes, it reminds us that the world is not as it ought to be. When we come to the letter of Philemon this morning, we come to a situation that is not as it ought to be. But Paul writes a letter in hopes that what is not right might be made right through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's set our hearts towards this letter as we together simply commit our way to the first seven verses of this little letter of Philemon. This is God's word. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Achippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in this hour having heard your word read and now with anticipation lean into its exposition. We need your spirit for it's by his power alone that this word might be illumined that it might come alive, that it might bring transformation into the hearts of us, the hearers. Bless us now in this way as we give our attention to it and guide us in the way of all truth and grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As we were mentioning adoption a second ago as something that is evidence of the fact that the world is not as it ought to be, that the reality of orphans and those who struggle in this life find themselves in destitute situations, um, it seems appropriate to also note uh, the fact that we have recently witnessed the fact that our world that we presently in is not just through the means of orphans, not the way it ought to be, but through the evidence of violence is not the way that it ought to be. Uh, many of you, as you were leaving church last Sunday, began to hear the reports coming out of Sutherland Springs, Texas, of the terrible uh, shooting in that local uh, Baptist church. I want uh, you to know, as the pastor of this congregation, uh, reflecting the leader's heart of this congregation, that we want to do everything within our power to make this a safe place in which to worship. Um, it was likely on your heart this morning, even as you entered into this room. It was on my heart this morning as I entered in 
to this room. The recognition that we live in a time where gathering in a space such as this in a local congregation in North America is not nearly as safe as it once was, at least in the felt sense of that, as these occurrences have begun to multiply in our country. We have already taken measures as a local congregation in the months previous to this in beginning to establish new safety measures. And you might notice um, a few additional safety measures, presence of deacons at doors and volunteers, more eyes as we develop a thoroughgoing safety plan for us as a congregation. Um, We want you to know this is on our hearts and it's on our minds. And we're going to seek within reason to make Cornerstone the most welcoming congregation it could possibly be while simultaneously being a very safe place for all of us to worship. I would ask that you would pray for us as leaders in that regard. Uh, This Tuesday night we will have a couple of uh, items of business on the docket as our leaders gather um, to put finances towards, training towards, being a congregation that is both welcoming, loving, and seeking to care and shepherd the flock of God here at Cornerstone. Pray for us in this, that we would be faithful and would not act in fear, but would act in faith, trusting that the Lord is with us. Now, as we think about conflict such as that, violence such as that, that is constantly on the 24-hour news cycle. Why we have 24-hour news, I do not know. We do not need it. 24-hour news cycle, constantly there to get you fearful about everything that's going on uh, in the world. But one of the things that's very obvious when you begin to watch the news is that there is conflict everywhere. Whether it is political parties feuding as factions around every issue imaginable, whether it is ethnic hostility that is rising between various groups that break out in riots and various levels of brutality, whether it's tensions between ideologies, philosophies, religions, fueling terrorist attacks and various forms of warfare globally. This is just common fare these days for the headline news. But the reality is, conflicts at the global level, at the national level, on these various spheres, is just the tip of the iceberg. It's really just the fruit of much deeper conflicts. Conflicts that go on much closer to home, like in your home, between husbands and wives, between parents and children. Uh, between co-workers, employers, and employees, uh, between uh, schools, between uh, teachers and administrations, uh, between churches, leaders and congregation members, leaders with leaders, congregation members with congregation members. Conflicts is everywhere that we look. You won't look in any sphere of society where there are more than one person And find that there is not the reality of conflict. It is the nature of things. But even if there was one person, that one person would find that they too are not free from conflict. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his very personal and heart-wrenching account of his time in the prison camps in the old Soviet Union, uh, wrote this. It was gradually disclosed to me while I was in the gulag 
that the line separating between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but it passes right in the middle of the human heart. The line he's describing there, the line between good and evil, is, could be summarized as a conflict. Solzhenitsyn realized that it wasn't in the institutions, it wasn't in the spheres. Uh, the real conflict was not out there somewhere. The real conflict was in here. It was inside the human heart. As we study the book of Philemon for the next three weeks uh, together, we're going to get to the heart of the conflict. We're going to seek by God's grace to expose the conflict of the heart. And we want to do it by exploring these 25 verses. That's right, the shortest of the Apostle Paul's letters, the most untheological, if I can put it that way, of all of Paul's letters, and in many ways the sweetest of the Apostle Paul's letters, this letter of Philemon. Who is Philemon? Who are we talking about? What is the circumstance of this little half-page-in-your-Bible letter. Well, Philemon was a resident of Colossae. He was a convert of the Apostle Paul's. He's named there in verse 1 along with his wife, Appia, and his son, Achippus. We find there in verse 2 that they have taken their home and they've used it as a portal for ministry. Paul tells us that they house one of the home churches in their living room. If you were the kind of uh, church planter who was parachuted into an area where there was not a church and you were looking for one key convert and one key family to support you in the building of a local congregation, you would want Philemon and his family. This is a key ministry family. And they're facing a very serious conflict. One of Philemon's slaves by the name of Onesimus, he's not mentioned yet in the first seven verses, but you'll see that name in the days to come, has actually run away, which was a legal crime, and escaped from Colossae to the big city of Rome. If we read between the lines later in the letter, in verse 18, the indication is that Onesimus, before he left, actually robbed Philemon and his family, probably seeking to provide for himself for a period of time before he could figure out what he was going to do. Now, we don't know the circumstances of why Philemon ran away. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes with regards to his escaping, but we do know that this is a very serious problem. The plot thickens because when Onesimus gets to Rome, somehow, we don't know the circumstances, he runs into the Apostle Paul. Now, Rome is a big place. It's not as if you would just pass the Apostle Paul on the sidewalk in Rome. It's unusual, we might say, that this runaway slave who is um, forsaking the um, master Philemon who Paul converted and is a leader in the church at Colossae would want to rub shoulders with the Apostle Paul under these circumstances. 
This has led many commentators to believe that Onesimus, after leaving, must have been burdened in conscience about what it is that he did, and he sought out the Apostle Paul in order to help him mediate or broker a reunion between him and Philemon in order to make things right. Others have argued because there is legality involved with a runaway slave leaving his master that Onesimus was thrown in prison, potentially in Rome, caught for what it is that he has done, and he was saddled up next to Paul while in prison. If you'll notice verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing, he is a prisoner for Christ. It's the only time in any of his letters that the Apostle Paul introduces a letter as a prisoner. And so we know during this time the Apostle Paul is in captivity, and most likely in Rome. How did these two meet? Well, we don't know. But when they met, we know what happened. The Apostle Paul pressed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Onesimus, and Onesimus was radically converted. Later in the letter, the Apostle Paul is going to indicate in a variety of ways that Onesimus has come into a saving relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In what is a beautiful twist of providence, Onesimus leaves his earthly master and he finds his heavenly one. And he does so in running from his responsibility, God catches him with grace. And he masters Onesimus' heart. Uh, For now, what appears to be the case, either at Paul's nudging or in the inclination of Onesimus' own heart, he wants to go back to Colossae. He wants to meet up with Philemon. He wants to return to his master, and we must only assume that he wants to experience the freedom of repentance, not the pseudo-freedom of a guilty conscience that's robbed and left his master behind. He wants to now live into the gospel, its forgiveness and reconciliation. We might say that grace has changed the direction of Onesimus' life. He wanted nothing more than to run away from Philemon, and now he wants nothing more than to run to him. He, like the prodigal son, has left, as it were, the pigsty of his sin, and he is returning home to Colossae, a changed man, ready to make things right. But as I noted earlier, this is a complicated matter. This is a legal reality in the first century. For a slave to steal from his master and abandon him was a crime, and it was not uncommon for such a crime to end in the death penalty. And so the Apostle Paul writes a letter. The Apostle Paul steps in the very middle of what is a conflict. A conflict between the master Philemon and this runaway slave Onesimus. And it is why when we read this letter, we see such personalness come out of the Apostle Paul. As he urges Paul to receive back this wicked, good-for-nothing slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. That even in God's great providence, this wickedness, the Lord has turned into an eternal grace. Now, it's hard to write such a letter, friends. (laughs) Maybe you've tried. 
Maybe you can think back over the course of your life of conflicts that you've had, significant conflicts with others, maybe family members or co-workers. Maybe you've even tried the business of mediation, of being a counselor or someone who could step in the middle of someone else's issues in order to broker a kind of peace. It's sticky business. Paul has done that, and what we see in the midst of this letter is such wisdom, such tact, such care, such love. And what we see in the midst of this letter is such gospel, a rich gospel that has nothing in the end to do with Lehman's grievances and Onesimus's um, goings and comings. It has everything to do with Jesus and the Apostle Paul puts it in that context. If you were going to write such a letter, how would you start? Would you jump deep and, and headlong into the issues? Uh, would you beat around the bush for a little while? I'll tell you how the Apostle Paul started. He started with prayer. He started with prayer. We want to look at the prayer for just a couple of minutes of the Apostle Paul And we want to see that he tells you what he prays. He tells you the thanksgiving of what he prays, the petition of what he prays, and the joy he gets in it. The thanksgiving that he prays, the petition that he prays, and the joy that he gets in it. I want you to first see what he's what he's heard about Philemon and the thanksgiving it gives, he starts off this way. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. What a beautiful way to begin such a letter. Philemon, when I think of you and I remember you in my prayers, I hearken back to the holy gossip to the righteous rumors that people say when they talk about you. When your name comes up in public conversation, it's no, there's no bad gossip. There's only good things to say. And the good things that are said is how your faith and your love in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints are seen in multiple ways and are affecting deep and abiding ministry. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in the context of this prayer, says, I want you to see, Philemon, how the Lord has, in a very real sense, been at work in you. How he's been at work in you. What What a faithful way to start. What a faithful way to think about a letter of reconciliation. Not flattery. I don't want to build you up in an empty and... A self-centered kind of way. I want to talk about God's work within you. And when I hear the testimonies of what it is you've done, faith and love for Christ and all the saints is what bubbles to the surface. I love that description because it teaches us that Philemon was not just a Christian in name. He didn't just say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ and he did nothing for the church. We're told very clearly that he loves God's people. That he loves all the saints. There's a genuine affection for the church. We see it displayed not in word but in action. He's hosting a house church within his very living room. 
This well-to-do businessman, he has slaves after all. He has a large enough house to be able to house the church. This well-to-do man is generous with that which is given to him. He's now seen the love of the Lord Jesus Christ so deeply for him that it's radically transformed his heart that he wants to be generous to others in the way that Christ has been generous to him. This is the spirit of Philemon. And I think this is really critical that Paul here draws together not a testimony of love for Christ apart from the church, but indelibly linked to and connected with the church. Uh, We live in a day and time where people love to say things like, I love Christ. I just don't care so much for his church. I love the message of the Lord Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus. I just don't really like being a member of a local church, and so I don't really connect to a church. Now, whenever we hear such comments, it's important to just pause, listen, and lovingly recognize that oftentimes behind that is a wound or hurt. Many of you have been in church situations that have been injurious to you. You've been pained by others within the context of the church. Maybe there's been a time in your life where the pain has been so significant that you've actually distanced yourself for a period of time from the church. And even today, maybe, in coming into this local congregation is a bit of a challenge. It's a hump to overcome because of those past wounds that have affected your heart. We have to be patient with that. We have to serve each other in the recognition of those difficulties, but we must never give in to that temptation. For serving and loving Jesus always includes and means serving and loving his church. Now, how can I say that? Because if you love and serve Jesus, you will want to love and serve the things that Jesus loves and serves, and the things that Jesus loves and serves is the church. To get close to Jesus' heart is to get close to the heart of the church. Because he died for the church. He gave his life for the church. Can you see the impossibility of saying, I am close to Jesus. I just am not close to the church. I don't love or serve the church. If that is the case, and you have not yet tapped in deeply to the heart of Jesus for the church. Now, you might say to yourself, well, Jesus, man, if he knew what I'd been through with the church, well, (laughs) he understands why it is I need to keep, as it were, a distance. Well, let me ask you, did Jesus ever get hurt by the church? I'm going to go out on a limb for a second. (laughs) Jesus has gotten hurt by the church. let Let me state it stronger. He has been hurt by the church More than anyone in this room. More than anyone in this room could be. And he loves the church. He loves the church. Now that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the reality of who Christ is. And he he looks at Philemon and he sees a love for Christ that's spilling over into a love for all the saints. He knows that the evidence of Philemon's life is pointing to the source of his love for Christ in the gospel because the gospel is shining through him. It's flowing through him. Now, why is this important? Well, I want you to think about the context and the purpose of this letter. This is a good-for-nothing slave Onesimus. 
who is who has robbed Philemon and has left him, and he has now returned. And guess what? Paul has made him Antichius the deliverer of this letter. That means at the moment Philemon is actually reading this letter, Onesimus is right before him. That's the context in which this letter is going to be read and understood. During his departure, he was radically converted. However, this means now that Onesimus is a part of the church. And Jesus loves the church. And Philemon loves Jesus and the church. Therefore, Philemon must love Onesimus. I love how the Apostle Paul kind of, well, if we can say it in a rhetorical way, pokes just a little bit in the ribs when he says, I hear of your faith and love towards a few of the saints, some of the saints, most of the saints. All the saints. And the one before you now is a saint. Believe it or not, he is one of Christ. Now, if this is the thanksgiving that Paul is unfolding for Philemon, what's his petition? What does he actually pray for? Because Paul doesn't stop there. He presses further. Look at what he says in verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, when you hear that little phrase, sharing of your faith, you probably think, as I did, even originally when I read it, Uh, earlier last week in preparation for this message, I thought that's a beautiful statement on evangelism. And then I began to study and get into the original languages and began to see, wait, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here is not a word for speaking, it's a word for fellowship. It's the classic Greek word of koinia. Koinia, the word that we usually translate as fellowship or participation or partnership. Now let me read the verse with that in view. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Now it's really important to realize that fellowship in the first century in the Bible is not coffee and donuts. It is not catching up on the SEC action from yesterday. It is not learning to build connections on a variety of human or worldly levels. Fellowship we use in a very loose sense, but the term is the same term that's used for the action that the church takes in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where we're told that people were selling their homes and their lands and giving the resources to any who would have need. That is koinia. I don't know about you, it's a little different than a conversation over coffee and donuts. That's messing with things. That's getting deep. That's sacrificial. That's costly. When the Apostle Paul writes, I pray that the fellowship of your faith, I pray that the sacrifice, the costliness, the challenges, the difficulties that you face in the faith together will draw out every good thing within your fellowship for the sake of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. When Philemon reads those words, he doesn't even know yet quite what he's in for. Because the fellowship that he is being called into is a fellowship that he's already thanked Philemon for. But it's a fellowship that now must go even deeper than maybe Philemon's ever been. 
not just opening up your house and your living room to be a sanctuary for the early church, but now he's calling upon the resources of character and virtue. He's calling upon the resources of forgiveness and reconciliation. He's calling upon Philemon to look in the eyes of someone who's wronged him and to hear him apologize, to ask for forgiveness, and to grant it full measure with no strings attached. That's costly. That's extremely costly. Let me, let me unpack this for just a minute with regards to forgiveness because we tend to think of forgiveness or, you know, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. We tend to think of those moments as light. We tend to think of them as small, as as, as not very significant. When the Bible's talking about forgiveness, it's talking about a radical act of fellowship, a costly and sacrificial endeavor. When you say, I forgive you, for someone who has committed an injustice and a sin against you, you are saying to that person, what you have done to me is extremely significant. It is a terrible sin of injustice. But my love for you is so great that I am willing to take the entire blow of that injustice and absorb it into me and pay back for you to be absolutely nothing so that you can live in free unity and reconciliation with me. You see how powerful that is? That's a powerful thing. You're saying to that person, I will take the blow for what you should have taken the blow for and will call it even because I love you. Now, for those of you who are attuned to the gospel, you see something right now. That is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is he hanging upon the cross, receiving the blow of all of your sins. And the wrath and the judgment of God for everything that you have done wrong. And he forgiving you for all of that sin. And you don't have to do anything in order to earn it. That's the power of the cross. And so when he says, I pray that the sharing of your fellowship will draw out every good thing within your community for the sake of the gospel. You can see the power of what it is that he's depicting in a public setting in the reading of this letter at the church there in Colossae with his wife and his son at his side with Onesimus, the runaway slave with Tychius there. He's saying, this is a moment for you to show us the cross. That's what he's saying. This is a moment for you to show us why Jesus came. This is not about your loss of money. This is not about the running away of Onesimus. This is about the power and the grace of God. That's what he's saying. That's a remarkable thing. He says, this is what I petition God for you to have in the resource of soul in the moment of reading this letter. And the apostle Paul wants to say, listen, Philemon, I want you to see, I think those resources are there for you because I've seen them in the testimonies that's been shared but now they're going to be pressed further in, deeper than it's ever been. And I think the resources are there by the power of the Spirit for you to apprehend it in the gospel and to give it 
fully to Onesimus who stands before you. And listen, I want you to know I've actually gained something from you already. I have such joy and comfort. In fact, with great anticipation, I can't wait to hear the story that comes out of this because I know based upon what it is the Lord's done in you, you are not going to let this continue to remain divided and hostile. You're going to experience a love and unity with Onesimus is going to show the whole church and the watching world what it's like when you walk by the grace of the gospel. Now Paul says, it's already happened for me. Look at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I want you to just picture this. It says, I'm praying I'm praying for the fellowship of the faith and all of its costly and sacrificial realities to be true of you in this moment and all of those around you to have the goodness that's within them through Christ by the power of the Spirit stirred up for the sake of the gospel. And I know that's going to happen because I've already derived such joy and comfort from your love. I've already seen it because you have refreshed the saints to such degree that I can't wait to see how this just escalates us all the more in the love of who Christ is. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying in the context of fellowship, as you see someone step out in faith and say yes to the call of Jesus and walk in the richness of the gospel, it makes an impact upon you that stirs up within you the desire to do the same thing. And you experience ascending joy and comfort by being in the fellowship of the faith with them. And he says that should be the compounding interest that is the currency of a local community in the church. That's what it's like. I've already received such joy and comfort from you because I've seen it in the eyes of those in whom you serve. They've been so refreshed. And when I saw how they had been refreshed, I was refreshed. I was deeply refreshed. Can you remember a time where you saw someone step out in such an amazing way with such courage, holy risk, doing that which God had called them to do from a passion of Christ and a love of him that he had become so beautiful to them that they were willing to lay everything on the line for him. And you began to walk with them and experience it alongside them. And was not your heart, those of you in Christ, stirred up to every good thing? That's what he says the community of faith is. That's what this is about. And here he begins to see And the richness of what this moment that looks like a problem, he sees it as an opportunity for grace. Now, as you can see, this moment of conflict has now turned into a moment of tremendous gospel opportunity. Because in the moment of conflict, every moment of conflict, whatever moment of conflict that you're in, there's an opportunity for you to die to something. And there's an opportunity for you to live to something. To die to your own self-interest, nursing your own resentments, coddling, as it were, your own bitternesses, making sure that the person comes back to you in just the right way and they hold their jaw and just as they ought to and they pay you back in just the way that they should. And if not, you're going to push their, your thumb down upon them, which means that you haven't even begun to get grace. You haven't begun to get grace. Praise be to God that God doesn't require that of you. Because you don't have a jaw that ever hangs right in relationship to God. And he, even this day in thought, word, and deed, he is going to forgive us for so many things. How could we then in the moment of a minor grievance 
not extend the same as we've been given. It's why in the letter of Colossians, which, by the way, fascinatingly, Onesimus and Tychius also have in their hand as they extend the letter of Philemon. A letter, interestingly, that will include the command, slaves obey your masters. We'll get to that later. There in that, in that letter, you find this instruction. Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. And it does not take much pondering to realize that we must be a people who are marked completely by forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. And that the power doesn't come in getting our share of what we think is just. The power comes in leaving it in the hands of God and letting the grace of the cross cover a multitude of sins. The question rising from this text as you see the beauty and the glory of the gospel, as I trust that you do, is who is this for you right now? Who is it that God is calling you to forgive? Who is it that you're withholding forgiveness from? Who eagerly wants it? Where are your resentments and your bitternesses? Are they against the body of Christ? How is the Lord calling you onward? In this grace that you might experience the fellowship of the faith and stir us all up to every good thing for the sake of the gospel. Whatever it is, friends, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And the longer you hold on to it, the more it's going to control you. And the sooner you release it to the grace of God, the sweeter will be the freedom that it will come. And that's what he's calling us to. To be a people who are quick in repentance, fast in forgiveness, and patient through the trial. Because Jesus was that for us on the cross. And Jesus is that for us right now as he stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask... That as we dig into this letter together and consider its very pertinent and practical instructions, that you would stir us up to the ways in which we have harbored resentment or bitterness, ways in which we have maintained conflicts, rather than being a solvent for them by walking according to the grace of the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would prick consciences, all of our consciences. Give us faces and names of those in whom we must, by your grace, strive in every grace possible to be able to receive and recognize and experience reconciliation. Father, we recognize too that there will be cases where we may not gain such reconciliation this side of heaven but we leave those with you. And when we leave those with you, we recognize that you will reconcile all things in Jesus. And so, Lord, let us with hope know that no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, Jesus is reconciling all things in himself. And though we may need to wait, 
we will do so with hope, knowing that you will accomplish all things for your glory. But Lord, as we hope in it, we ask that you would give to us reasons to to glorify you in the here and now by you transforming lives through reconciliation and forgiveness. And Lord, you know exactly who needs to hear that. And you know to the degree that all of us must now embrace it. Would you in exact measure overwhelm us in the way that we need to be in order to live forth the glory of your grace and your forgiveness? Answer this prayer, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.